the sheeple effect, right? We see it in play all the time. Summer, winter, doesn't matter what mountain, doesn't matter if it's a day trip or an expedition, like it exists for sure. Are you one of the sheeple? How do we basically keep ourselves to our personal constraints? Uh, it's, it's an ongoing battle. We are social animals. The decisions made by those around us can have an enormous impact on the decisions we make ourselves. For the most part, this doesn't have catastrophic consequences. But in an extreme environment? If you start losing control of yourself and your personal goals and views, things can quickly get out of hand. Hello, everyone. Before we get things started, I have some wonderful news. Many of you will remember that at the beginning of this year, we did a goals episode uh, entitled 2015 Goals, Write It Down, Make It Happen. And in that episode, we talked about how publicizing your goals can significantly increase your chances of succeeding them. There's a page on our website where we have all written down our goals. If you haven't done it yet, go do it mtnmeister.com. Anyway, the great news is that I have achieved one of my professional goals. It was goal number two, which was to release an episode of Mountain Meister without doing any editing at all. What you're about to hear is a completely uncut version of my interview with Brian Warren. Brian, thank you for speaking so eloquently throughout this entire half hour on my part, it wasn't perfect. There were, there were a couple of mistakes. But it accomplishes what a Mountain Meister episode should accomplish. I am proud of the quality. And some people have actually told me that they like it when I make mistakes. If you'd like to hear more of my reflection on this goal, stay tuned for after the episode. And I'll talk for a few more minutes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of this podcast that we call Mountain Meister. Today on the show, we welcome Brian Warren. Hello, Brian. Hello, Ben. For the listeners who don't know Brian Warren, he is a professional year-round mountain guide based out of Jackson, Wyoming. He guides in various parts of the world, including but not limited to Jackson Hole, the Pacific Northwest, and the European Alps. He has also guided in Alaska and climbed in, sorry, he has also climbed and guided in Alaska, Canada, South America, in the Himalaya. He, he presently holds IFMGA and AMGA aspirant status, and he is an Avalanche Level 3 certified guide, which I believe, is that the highest level, Brian? It is the highest level in the U.S. In correct. the U.S. Well, congratulations on that. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I am sure that you're surrounded by people in the mountain community who think that being a mountain guide isn't a weird job, but in the grand scheme of things, it's actually about as weird as being a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, how, how do people react outside of that community when you tell them you're a mountain guide? You know, I think outside of the, the guiding world, we do have to remind ourselves that, yeah, it is a really small community. It is a very... Uh, niche occupation. And I know, you know, growing up in, you know, the South, uh, it, the questions are always, are you hunting and fishing? 
and that's something I'm constantly having to explain to family and friends and, and people that don't quite understand, you know, what a lot of us guides do across the American West and, and obviously on an international level. Um, but yeah, it is, is a, it's definitely a lot to it, right? And I think there's so many facets of guiding that it's hard for people to comprehend that people bounce around and it's very seasonal and it's based all around the weather really is what it comes down to is, is your work revolves around the weather and, and moving people through the mountains. And so it's definitely, uh, it is interesting to try to break down in a very simplistic manner to people that have no idea or no concept of what it is. Yeah. You mentioned those questions, the questions that I get when I tell people that I host a podcast, how did you get into that? How did you make money or how do you make money? And, <laughs> and how do you find people to come onto the podcast? So I'm going right. to, I'm going to turn those around on you. Um, I don't, I actually don't get sick of these questions, even though I get them all the time. Uh, it's just that like none of them have very easy answers. Correct. So when people yeah. ask you them like in a loud bar or whatever, it's like, well, we need to go somewhere else to talk about how I make money. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did you get into that is the first question. How did you get into mountain guiding? So for me, uh, you know, I often joke. I, I say I kind of fell into it. And really, it, it was never something I, you know, had concept of. Obviously, I made the mistake, fortunately, of driving from Atlanta, Georgia to Jackson, Wyoming when I was 20 years old. Wow. And during that time period, I basically, you know, I'd pick Jackson on the map. I'd, I'd just recently finished a Knowles course in Alaska. So I'd been introduced to, you know, some outdoor education and leadership. But before, prior to that, I'd never been to Jackson. I had no job. I didn't know a single person there. I had no place to live. And I rolled in in October and, you know, basically got a job at the ski resort that first winter. Um, and around 2006, after years of living out west and, and working numerous jobs, I decided to take a, an American Mountain Guides Association uh, guides course. And so I basically uh, took a guides course to see if it was something I'd be interested in. And then I started looking around at, you know, maybe this is something I'd like to do. And I started contacting, obviously, local guide services and and, you know, looking for mentors. And, and it was around that time, that 2006, 2007 winter, I also made the decision to move uh, and live in the, the Alps in France and ski for the season. Hmm. So the second question was, how do you make money? I think we can safely assume that people pay you to take, <laughs> to take them out there. <laughs> the third one is a little bit more interesting. How do you find people who trust you enough to bring you out into the wild? Has that ever been a problem? It's a constant problem. I think, you know, that's the amazing thing about mountain guiding. I'm always blown away that, you know, for what we do and our skill and our trade is moving people safely through the mountains. The amount of time I spend on a computer and social media and answering questions and on the phone and conference calls and, and basically trying to solicit people to, you know, figure out what their goals are, if, it, if they exist in the mountains, and then how do we get them out there with this, right? I mean, that's it's within the industry. It's like, where do your, where do your guests and your clientele come from? And uh, it's definitely a small, small percentage of the world that one can afford to get out with, with guides for small and large objectives. Uh, and two, people that, you know, do they have the time? Do yeah. they have time to, to go into the mountains for a day or a three-day trip or a 70-day expedition? 
So yeah, very interesting. I, I I'll admit that I was once a victim at, at one point in time in thinking that guiding on mountains is essentially like the same experience as climbing it for the reasons that people do, but it's actually so, so different as you're starting to talk about how, how is it different, I guess? And you talked a little bit about, um, trying to, to get the people on the mountain, but let's talk about while you're on the mountain, how is the experience different? You know, I think it's, it, it's very different, right? Cause you're managing, obviously you're managing your expectations and how you, uh, kind of have forecasted, the trip to run, you know, whether it's a single day rock climb or it's a multi-week expedition. Um, and so suddenly you're, you're in this position where you are managing people's time and money and expectations and essentially personality. And, you know, you're watching this person kind of ride the, the human emotion roller coaster, um, you know, whether it's short term or long term. And so it's interesting. You, you kind of have the the level of okay, I'm I'm a mountain guide. I have a skill set. I know what to apply at the right time, um, given the conditions. And so, really, most of your focus is managing this person on so many different levels, right? Like, mm-hmm. are are they happy? Are they well fed? Are they feeling well? Are they feeling strong? Um, are they enjoying this? You know, are they going to come back? Is this something they're, uh, you know, they're finding pleasure in? Um, so really it is just managing, managing humans in the mountain environment is what it comes down to at the end of the day. Do you have any desire to manage humans in a different capacity or do you like this raw form of managing emotion, appetite, uh, uh, appetite, I guess, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in different levels of mountain travel, you know, that's, I'm looking to branch out a little bit. We've, um, I've been working a lot in some, you know, mountain production arenas recently in the past couple of years. And, and it's very similar, right? It's very similar to running a, an expedition. Um, but of course, it's a little more fast paced, shorter schedules, um, sometimes very direct objectives of getting certain shots. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really think uh, managing logistics, managing people and putting all the pieces of the puzzle together is is truly what I do enjoy, um, kind of making, you know, kind of painting a picture and, and trying to make it fit at the end of the day. We hear a lot of people talk about how they feel this very intimate connection with the mountains. Um, it sounds to me almost like that's not you. You enjoy more of the logistical part of this. Um, true for sure. You know, I think it's, it's one of those challenging things where you're like, we're going to move this many people up and down set objective. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that on a daily basis and even down to like a minute, you know, minute and hourly and half hourly, it's like you're, you're watching people change. You're watching people push themselves. Um, and so not to take away from that, I, I truly enjoy uh, what I consider like the fight, mm-hmm. right? I, I love watching people kind of, you know, see what they're made of and, and see how far they can push themselves and, and obviously, as guides, we're we're there to facilitate that. We're there to help drive and, and coach and lead and mentor. Um, you know, even people that have more experience than than you or have had many more days in the mountains, you're you're still there to to facilitate the day or mm-hmm. or the expedition or the or the ski run. Um, and so, I think on the broader level, I love organizing trips and making trips happen, whether it's a 
you know, short trip, long trip. Uh, but at the end of the day, really watching, watching people, you know, give it all they got, um, you know, and just put the smile on their face. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious then if you love this human guiding element of it so much. How often do you climb for personal reasons? You know, people always ask, "Well, what do you do on your day off?" And and I, you know, it's true. We're usually in the mountains, uh, climbing or skiing. And and I'm fortunate enough to to live in an area that, you know, I can in a minute's notice I can grab my skis and mm-hmm. and meet friends and go ski touring or or ski at the ski area you know, minutes from where I live. Um, and it's a little bit different in the summertime. I think I, you know, we're so busy as guides and, and where I do most of my summer guiding, it's a very short season. Um, but yeah, when we're, especially I know for myself, if, if I have a day off, uh, I am usually found in the mountains. Um, and I do have a lot of goals for personal climbs and personal ski trips and, and things I'd like to do that don't necessarily revolve around guiding people. Now, would you say that your appetite for risk or whatever risk you're willing to accept, is that different when you're guiding people versus your own personal pursuits? I wouldn't say it, it's drastically different. Obviously, there's going to be some disparity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the, at the end of the day, you really have to ask yourself, you know, what's the internal dialogue and how is it interacting with the mountain environment? And I, you know, I was having this conversation the other day with uh, a lot of the winter guides I work with in the Tetons, and you know, we were stating between avalanche education and, and ski guiding and, and guiding the Grand Teton all summer that my decision making and, and risk acceptance really isn't different whether I'm out with friends, uh, colleagues, you know, or guests. Um, I don't think it, it really has much disparity uh, in the realm of I, as if I'm going to push it further in the mountains or take more risk on a personal level versus a a, a professional level. We're we're starting to transition beautifully into the next topic, (laughs) which is I want to talk about uh, conforming to social pressures. And you're lucky enough to have your interview in the middle of while I'm reading this book called Nudge uh, by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, who are both uh, economists and deal with a lot of human behavior. Right. This is a fascinating topic, and I want to bring up one experiment that I read about this morning. Uh, so bear with me. I'm just going to explain this experiment, get your perspective on it, and then eventually we're going to tie it all back to to mountain guiding. Perfect. Um, So you, Brian, are in a room with five other people, and all of you are given a a really simple task. Uh, The group of you are given this white card together, and there's a line, just like a a line drawn on, uh, on the card that's a certain length. And then you're shown three other lines uh, on a screen, and all you have to do is match the length of the line that you see on this card to the line that you see on the screen right in front of you guys. So super, super simple task. Uh, All you're doing is matching lines. Uh, So in the first three rounds of doing this, everybody agrees with everybody, right? You're all like, okay, yep, that line matches that (laughs) line. Then in the fourth round, you notice that each person chooses a different line than the one you were going to choose. So everybody chooses this other line. You thought it was uh, a a different one. So it comes to you. You have to choose. 
Are you choosing the line that everybody else chose, or are you going to choose the one that originally looks similar to you? I think you have to go with instinct and say, this is, this is my decision. I'm so, sticking with it. So you would think that that's the case for everyone, but sadly it isn't. <laughs> when this experiment is conducted, between 20 and 40% of people conform to the decisions of the others in the group. Right. And what's even <clears throat> scarier is that when researchers monitor brain activity during this experiment, yeah. the subject who conforms to the group actually ends up believing that he or she sees the situation as everybody else. <laughs> so to, to, Sounds to, about right. To me, this is a little disturbing, uh, especially when we put it into the context of the decisions that can have real consequences. Right. Uh, have, you, have there been times when you've identified like this social conformity on the mountain? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, <clears throat> I think the, you know, moving people through the mountain environment, it's, it's of course, you're sometimes using conformity to your advantage. Hmm. You know, I'm not going to hide that. There's, there's often, you know, if there's weather issues or, or people are having, you know, physical or fitness issues. Um, yeah, there's definitely times where you try to get the group to conform in, in one way or another. Interesting. And I, I want to flash back to uh, another interview that we had with a guy named Eric Meyer. And wow, I wish I could remember what episode number he is. I'm going to say 84, uh, but I might have to edit that out and put in another number. <laughs> um, and he was on K2 during the 2008 disaster. Mm -hmm. And we flash back to like, why? Why did that happen? Why did people continue going up the mountain? Yet when he saw that conditions weren't for him, he stopped. Right. And he said, you know, I think it was just a matter of groupthink. People right. just kept like follow the leader. For sure. I mean, the, we, the, the sheeple effect, right? We as guides and, and mm, mountain sheeple. educators, it's like we, I refer to the sheeple. Yeah. Good term. Effect all the time. And, and we see it in play all the time summer winter doesn't matter what mountain doesn't matter you know if it's a day trip or an expedition like it exists for sure how, how do you avoid it how do you avoid the sheeple effect right how do you not become one of the the sheeple it you know i don't know it it's interesting i i spend so many days of winter teaching you know avalanche education and talking about the the, the decisions that humans make in high risk environments and how do we control humans and how do we, how do we basically keep ourselves to our personal constraints? Uh, it's, it's an ongoing battle for sure. You know, there's so many outside variables that are driving people. Um, how do you not conform to, to what others are doing in the mountains? I think it's really tough. Yeah. It's just so crucial to stay objective. Right. It's absolutely crucial. I mean, we always talk about, you know, hazards that you can control and risk that you can kind of manage. And, and outside of that, there's so many things out of your control. Yeah. Um, if you start losing control of yourself and your personal, you know, self-preservation and your, and your personal goals and, and, and views, um, and basically, you know, your, the processes that you typically go through, I think if you lose control of that, things can quickly get out of hand yeah it's such a fascinating dynamic to me because like normally we're talking about if a mistake happens 
it's not the end of the world. But in this case, you know, when we're talking about high altitude mountaineering or, or whatever it is, right? It's like <laughs> bad things can happen. Bad things like, can just happen be, just because of human <laughs> behavior. Like right. Because of things that are biologically, or just like how our brains work, it's it's scary. Totally. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, on a lighter note, another example of social conformity. Uh, on average, when we eat with another person, we find ourselves eating about 35% more than when we're alone. Uh, people in a group of four eat about 75% more. Wow. And in a group of seven plus, 96% more. 96% yeah, more. Almost twice as much. Probably a, to start passing around bottles of wine. I was going to say, know. that's a lot of wine. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and all of this stuff, uh, again, I think I mentioned at the beginning, all of this stuff is coming from a book I'm currently reading called Nudge. Uh, I'll have the link on your Meister profile page, Brian. And Perfect. if anybody is out there, including you, uh, listening, if you're interested in listening to the audio version, we have this deal with audible.com. If you click on the link on Brian's page, we get credit for that. You get a free month worth of audiobooks or one audiobook. So, anyway, on to another topic. We mentioned you're a level three avalanche instructor. Uh, avalanche safety is always a hot topic. I want to talk specifically about technology that's developing around the issue, uh, which seems great, uh, but we'll talk about that. There's a new company called Avatech, which has been very popular thus far, and you have been involved in uh, in using this tool. Tell us a little bit about Avatech. So Avatech, you know, obviously the it's definitely the hot topic this season. I think it it you know <clears throat> hit on a lot of different levels. I think people were looking for something new. Um, obviously it's, it's another tool of the trade as far as making observations and, you know, in the wintertime environment, we always talk about moving through the mountains and, and making your, your field obs and your weather obs. And of course your snow obs and Avatech has really figured out a, a way to confirm and track, uh, snow observations, you know, over the terrain and, and over time. And it's a tool that, you know, if people aren't familiar with it, it's it's very similar to uh, an avalanche uh, safety probe, rescue probe, um, except on one end of the probe, uh, the end you're not driving into the snow is obviously a, looks similar to a GPS. Um, it's this little monitor that is basically reading densities and changes of density in the snowpack. And this is something that you know, at the very simplistic level of, of snow safety, we're always tracking densities. We're always looking at, do we have, you know, heavy over light? Do we have strong over weak? Um, and obviously those are things we're constantly thinking about when it comes to avalanches and where and when do they release. And so with Avatech, we now have the technology to um, not necessarily – uh, glaze over any sort of observations, but we have the ability to track densities, I think, at a, as a, at a faster rate um, throughout a given day mm-hmm. and, and maybe get throughout the, the terrain as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating technology. I think it's just available to guides right now and to the broader public soon. It is. So right now it's at a professional level. Um, Avatech uh, they do have some software called Avanet, which is a, 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 an amazing platform for uh, posting observations and, and sharing observations and, and getting 
uh, more and more knowledge out there. Um, and so there's a couple of different levels of the, the software, but at this point, the, the Avatech um, S1 probe is only available in the hands of basically snow professionals. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, everything transpires. Uh, what I was going to bring up here with all of this technology developing around avalanche education, um, we've heard popular examples of too much technology. Uh, something uh, A popular one is in football. Some argue that improvements in helmet technology make players have a false sense of security and the right. concussions increase. Uh, there are many examples of where people just get complacent and they rely on too many, uh, too many things, and then there's this rebound effect. Right. Do you see this as a possibility in avalanche safety? Oh, not, not even a possibility. It's a reality. Reality, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I, you've caught me right in the middle of, you know, I just wrapped up a, a level two course, Last weekend, just taught another level one, and I have another level two coming up. And so, you know, for the past two weeks, I've just been basically talking day in and day out about decision making and and technology and and avalanches and and for sure, people definitely have this this uh, kind of safety bubble mentality that if I'm wearing a, an avalanche airbag or you know soon to be carrying around uh, an Avatech probe or I have the latest and greatest. Um, beacon for sure we see people make decisions that i think that uh is being swayed by by the equipment and technology do you think that i'm not sure if you have an opinion on this but do you think that some technologies shouldn't exist i don't know if some technologies shouldn't exist i think at a certain level things should do exactly what they're meant to do um you know in the realm of of avalanche beacons and you know transceivers you know i like seeing that for a while, there was some some technology being added to to beacons, and now that's tapered back off. Mm. We're back to the beacon doing exactly what it needs to do, um, no more, no less. So yeah, I think there you know there, there's a balance there, right? You know we, we we're all carrying around smartphones now, and there's there's so many amazing apps, and and I think people can I don't want to say paint themselves into a corner, but they can certainly get to a point where they they might be or possibly relying on on too much technology to move through the mountains mm-hmm. um, where they really need to kind of boil it back and distill it down you know to what am I actually using uh, what are my resources mm-hmm. yeah boil it down uh, here's another interesting experiment uh, a town in ne- the Netherlands called Drochten. Uh, somebody decided to do an experiment there where they took down all of the street signs. They removed all <laughs> of the street signs and tra- Sounds like Kathmandu. traffic accidents decreased. Uh, and the person who formulated this said, there have been few small collisions, uh, but these are almost to be encouraged. We want small accidents in order to prevent serious ones in which people get hurt. Wow. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, it says motorists need the sense of danger to feed their attention uh, rather than external controls. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. So it's, it's amazing how many parallels there are uh, in just in life. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to your gear recommendation, something that we ask every single one of our Meisters I think, unless I forgot to ask a couple of them, which I actually think I did. So, <laughs> um, let's let's get a gear recommendation from you. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's so many 
types and, mm-hmm. and you know whether it's clothing or gear but you know there's definitely one thing that that is i've realized over the past couple of years has not left my pack and it basically gets shifted pack to pack to pack um and maybe it's just in the realm that i work in colder temperatures but uh you know <clears throat> basically it's a puffy jacket right a light puffy jacket um mountain hardware ghost whisperer puffy jacket yeah that that and one I, actually has never been recommended we've had uh, numerous puffy jackets before and that one is for its weight and its warmth and its durability. It's, you know, I have a, a couple of them, but I just can't seem to damage them. Can, can they, you identify, like, what it is about this Ghost Whisperer that is different? Like, like why is this down, da- this down jacket different from all other down jackets? Again, it kind of goes into the, the weight. Yeah. You know, it's super light. It's super compactable. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a, a small day pack in the summer, um, alpine pack. It doesn't matter if it's my ski pack. It doesn't matter if it's a pack I'm carrying, you know, a high altitude above 8,000 meters. Um, if it's not on my body, then the puffy is always in my pack. And it's it's constantly going back and forth. And it's a layer that I've realized I can wear basically every day of the year, no matter what the environment is. Yeah, very um, good. Yeah. The Mountain Hardware Ghost Whisperer Down Puffy Jacket on Brian's Meister profile page as well. You'll also find a quote from him. Not sure what it is yet, but I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go into the last question that we are integrating in every single interview. This is this was recommended by Casey Green, uh, yeah. Meister number 104, I believe. And that is who do you want to see as the next Mountain Meister? Uh, next Mountain Meister. Um, you know, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, Maurizio Fellini. And he's an Italian IFMGA guide, but uh, more importantly, he is a high altitude uh, heli pilot. And Maurizio is a dear friend. He co owns a heli service out of Kathmandu in Nepal and has obviously worked. Um, we've worked with him hand in hand doing film projects, uh, production work, and then obviously just transferring um, our guests on our expeditions back and forth between, you know, Kathmandu and, and the mountains. Um, and Maurizio is, he's one of those people you meet that could obviously have the label of the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> yes, perfect. Well, keep an eye out for Maurizio on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Did he ever let you fly the helicopter, Brian? Uh, I think he... Let's me think that I've flown the helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. For the listeners, check out highlights of today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Brian guides for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. You can check them out at jhmg.com, I believe. Correct. All right. There it is, a 100% uncut version of Mountain Meister. Hope I did okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it in just a second. But first, let me tell you about a great deal that Brian and Jackson Hole Mountain Guides have kindly offered us. They're giving everybody 10% off of any of the three ski touring programs 
that Jackson Hole Mountain Guides is offering until April 5th. These include ski tours all over the Grand Teton, also a more advanced ski mountaineering class. This discount applies for private lessons, for lessons of two or up to three for the ski tour. And many of these tours will be led by Bryant. So if you ever wanted a mountain meister as your mountain guide, now's the time. Go to our website. We'll have full details there, including the prices, the discount, and also how to get the deal. Essentially, all you need to do is call Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. Tell them that you heard Brian on the podcast or on Mountain Meister, whatever. This is kind of like when you go up to a club and you just drop a name and they let you in. That happens to me all the time. Just mention Mountain Meister over the phone. 10% off Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. For those of you still with us, thanks for sticking around. Just a little reflection on my goal. Uh, A lot of people ask me how long it takes to prepare a Mountain Meister episode. Uh, Just the editing itself can vary depending on how I perform, how the guest performs, uh, if there are any distractions, like if we had an ambulance run by my apartment, (laughs) then I have to re-record. So this episode took no time to edit. Uh, There was a tiny ambulance sound. Uh, If you go back in the episode, you might be able to hear it. Some of the longer episodes can take upwards of six hours to edit. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. As far as goals are concerned, one sign of a good goal is that it's actually a goal that you want to accomplish. I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but sometimes people kind of just throw arbitrary things out there and the passion isn't there. In this case, this turned out to be a really great goal, and I'm going to strive to do this in the future because it saves me so much time. Another sign of a rather ambitious goal is that there are things that are out of your control. Uh, so when we talk about our BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, most likely there's something in that goal that is out of your control. In this case, I was dependent on how my guests performed. Again, nice work, Brian. Also, sometimes we have to deal with internet problems, uh, connectivity, things like that, and things going on outside of the recording studio, the ambulances, knocking, yelling, whatever. We want to see updates of your 2015 goals. Post them to our goal section on our website or email me, ben at mtnmeister.com. I'd love to hear they're going and maybe we'll feature you on an episode of mountain meister if you haven't written your goals on our website yet go do it i'm telling you there's some truth to this thank you for listening to this unedited (laughs) unedited version of mountain meister enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast i'm your host Ben Shank, and you have been listening to Mountain Meister.